Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 12, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the 2018 book, Spiritual Grit, and which has, by the way, two companion devotions, one for adults, one for teenagers. So there you go. If you want, if you want a grit-growing experience, read the book then get the one or both of those devotions, and it'll keep your journey going there. And I'm also uh, the author of The Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of the foundation of this podcast, lots of themes and references and ways of thinking that are embedded in this podcast first were expressed in The Jesus-Centered Life. So if you don't have a copy of The Jesus-Centered Life, that's something you might want to go grab. And I'm the editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which is sort of a what an incredible story behind that Bible. We decided four years ago now, maybe five years ago, that we wanted to create a Bible that had special features in it that would, as you were reading the Bible, help you to magnetically orbit your life around Jesus. And we wanted to experiment and try things maybe that we had never seen in another Bible before, and we ended up including eight or ten, I can't remember how many of these extra special features in this Bible, and one of them got a huge amount of attention when the Bible was released. My friend Ken Castor and I set out on an adventure to see if we could highlight every place that we could find in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus somehow, and then we would highlight that portion of the Old Testament in blue lettering, and then write a little blue box next to each one of those that explained the connection. And we had no idea how many we'd find, and we discovered quickly that there are too many to put all of them in, in one Bible. It would just get too big, so we limited ourselves to about 700 of those. And then after we were all done, Ken and I spent, I don't know, probably about three weeks together total with him living in our house during, off and on to, to accomplish this. We had no idea how long it would take, but it took us a long time, as it turns out. Uh, in fact, I remember the first time we met— he was going to come live in my house for three days, and we thought that we could get about halfway through the Old Testament in those three days. Oh, what rubes we were. <laughs> we barely made it through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, in those three days. So Ken had to keep coming back and living in my house until we were all finished. But after we were done, we wondered, I wonder how other people did this same thing in their Bible, and we went looking and discovered that no one else had ever done this before. So the Jesus-centered Bible has, throughout the Old Testament, highlighted blue text with these vibrant blue boxes that explain the connection, and there's almost on every page of the Old Testament, there's one of these little blue boxes. So that led to almost 130,000 people now buying a copy of the Jesus-centered Bible. So if you haven't already received your copy or gone out and snagged one for yourself, please do. You can go to mylifetree.com, and you'll find all of our Jesus-centered resources right there. You can check out uh, the Bible, uh, the books, the devotions, the journals, the daily planner, all kinds of things. And, spoiler alert, 
I am right now working on a 365-day devotional called the Jesus Center Daily, which I am supposed to have finished in November and it'll come out in 2020. So that'll be the next companion piece where you can get a daily devotional that will be as unique as the Bible. One of the concepts in this devotional will be that the important thing is to experience Jesus, not just talk about him or think about him. And so every one of these little devotionals that I create will have a way to actually experience Jesus using one of your five senses. So it'll be a sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell devotional with all kinds of very simple, everyday ways to experience Jesus. So that'll come out in 2020. I am right now just starting the process of working on that, and that will be a bullet train all the way to November. So there's something coming up. So again, you can go to mylifetree.com if you want to check out uh, the Jesus-Centered Bible as we head toward Easter. Fantastic gift, also a fantastic companion as you're moving through the 40 days of Lent to really focus on Jesus. Jesus-Centered Bible will be a great companion for that. So today we continue our on-ramp into the Easter season with a series I'm calling Death to Life. It's the two part of this that really is the important part, death to life. The death isn't really the focus, it's what the death leads to. And in the kingdom of God, this cycle of death to life is embedded. It's it's part of the rhythm of the life of the kingdom of God. It's the rhythm that exists down to our cellular level as human beings. Our cells are always dying so that the parts of those dying cells can be reconstructed into living cells, and that's how our body it continually reproduces itself at a cellular level. So the death-to-life cycle is in our body, and it's in the seasons that we're surrounded by. It's everywhere. It's the metaphor for our life with Jesus. Uh, it's the core. It's at the core of the kingdom of God. So death, again, in all its forms, is the open door into life. And so today's episode, we're going to tackle the reality that we have an enemy who intends to kill, steal, and destroy— Jesus was quite clear about this, and he's not kidding. We have an enemy who intends to kill and steal what is most precious to us and destroy what is most valuable to us. So Jesus couldn't be more blunt and urgent about this reality. So death, really beyond our physical death, really, is the death of our our soul, really, the, the thing that makes us us is what that enemy's target really is after. So he's really focused on our identity. He wants to kill it, destroy it, inject toxins into it so it self-destructs. This is really his aim. His primary strategy for killing, stealing, and destroying in our life is by planting what I call destructive narratives in our soul, little portions of our story that are designed to destroy over time. So that's what we're going to delve into. And let me give you a little story from our last small group gathering with the teenagers in my in my house. I want to tell you a little bit of how we got into a, a conversation about bugs in our operating system, which is another way of describing the planting of destructive narratives in our story. Bugs in our operating system was our focus on a recent night, and I started off by one of the girls in our group. Her name is Emma. 
and she hadn't been at the group for a couple of weeks. She was gone. And she was back this week, and I warned her in advance I was going to use her as an example in what we were going to pursue that night. And so I started off by asking everyone in the room if they had heard where Emma had been those two weeks that she wasn't there in the group. And some people nodded their head, and I said, well, let's just assume that Emma wasn't telling you the whole truth about where she was during those two weeks, and let's, let's treat her two-week absence as a mystery, even if you've heard her explain where she was. Let's just assume that she wasn't telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So I got them in pairs, and I gave them five minutes to come up with a story that explained where Emma had been for two weeks. And it could be as creative and as imaginative as they wanted, but it had to reflect the essence of what they knew and experienced in Emma herself. They couldn't have her in the story doing things that were very un-Emma-like. They got five minutes to create their stories, and then I had each pair tell their story, and they were really funny and creative and imaginative. And Emma herself had to create a story about herself, <laughs> about an alternate version of reality, about where she had been. It was really fun to to do this and listen to all of these stories. And then I asked them, well, based on uh, what these stories reveal about who we think Emma is, what words describe what we think we know about her? And so I wrote a bunch of words on our whiteboard that described what we think we know about Emma, and they were all over the board. But it was fascinating to see how you got a, a fantastic picture of who she really is just by plucking out clues from the stories these kids created about her. And then I said, the stories that we tell about others and the stories that we tell about ourselves, you know, the sort of interior conversation we have with ourselves, reveals the beliefs we hold about that person or we hold about ourselves. The story that we're always telling ourselves is really our way of sort of nurturing, editing, and caretaking our identity. That story that we tell about ourselves, if something comes into that narrative that doesn't make sense of the story that we're already telling, that creates dissonance, and we have to do something with that. What I mean by that is, like, say, for instance, you're having a bad day, and you blow up at somebody close to you. Well, now you're thrown into dissonance because now you've just behaved badly, and that's not the story you tell about yourself. And so now you have to figure out, why did I blow up? Why did I do something that is inconsistent with the story I'm telling myself? So normally what we do is we, we look for reasons why we blew up. Either it's something the person did, so we blame them for our blow up, or we haven't had enough sleep, or we had a stressful encounter uh, in the day, and now it's coming back to bite somebody else in our life. We have to come up with a reason that explains the dissonance we now feel from doing something that doesn't fit in our story. We can't just do something that doesn't fit and say, oh, well, it doesn't fit. That doesn't matter. That's not how we operate. Those aberrations are a threat to the story we tell ourselves. It can also be the other reality as well. When somebody says, for instance, something that is that something they've experienced in you that is highly good, for instance, and that doesn't fit the negative story you tell yourself about inside, then you will push back against that person who's trying to offer something true and good to you. You will reject it because it doesn't fit your story. So the stories we tell about ourselves and the stories we tell about others 
really do reveal the beliefs we hold about them and, and about us. So, And belief, by the way, is the most powerful force in the universe. The things we believe determine the course of our life, and the things that we believe are fundamental to either our hope or our depression, our anxiety, our lack of hope. So here's a question, and this is the question I threw out to the, the kids that night. What does an operating system in a computer do? And it was interesting that you know, probably like you, we all use a computer, but we don't really think about how it operates or why it is able to do the things it does. Well, the the way that a computer can do the things it does is because of its operating system. An operating system in a computer determines how it works and what it's capable of doing. Literally, that operating system is software that allows us to have a relationship with the computer to relate with it in sort of a predictable way, in a trusting way. That operating system determines the computer's functions and limitations and possibilities. And if you think about that description of the necessity of an operating system in a computer, the operating system for human beings is called story. Our story, our internal story, works to construct or give meaning to or set boundaries around our reality. Again, the story we tell about ourselves determines how we function, and it sets our limitations and possibilities in life. So, similarly, metaphorically, if we get a bug in our story, the whole thing could crash. Have you ever been working on a computer? Like This happened uh, just a weekend ago when my daughter Lucy was home right after spring break, and she had been on a week-long trip and had some assignments she had to do in the day between when she returned from her trip and she had to be back at school. So she was cranking on that one day. And it was late at night. She was exhausted. She was about five minutes from finishing a major project, and her computer froze. Have you ever had that experience where you just see this spinning orb in front of you, and you're wondering? And I learned, because she's so tired, she had forgotten and neglected to save her work along the way. So it was hours of work that she could lose because of the spinning orb. And so then your stress level, your anxiety level just ratchets up because what is wrong with my my computer right now? It's somehow got a bug that is uh, messing it up, and it could destroy all of her work. And in the worst-case scenario, a really bad, toxic, poisonous bug could destroy your computer. It could, it could ruin your hard drive. So a bug in a computer... If it's left to fester and grow and and we don't figure out where it is and get it off there, can not only hamper our ability to use that computer, but it could actually destroy it. Well, there you get some of the same language that our enemy, who goes by many names, Satan, Lucifer, enemy of God, the evil one, he goes by all kinds of names in Scripture. But that enemy, if his intention is to kill, steal, and destroy— You could say, metaphorically, his intention is to plant bugs in our operating system, destructive narratives in our story. He wants to infiltrate our story with these destructive bugs. And sometimes we simply can't overcome those bugs in life. Death is the purpose of some of those bugs. This is, by the way, one of the reasons that is fueling a crisis of suicide in our culture— So many people have had destructive narratives planted in their story, 
And those destructive narratives have been allowed to grow and broaden and deepen in their story, and pretty soon the destructive bug becomes their story, and they can't see outside of that destructive bug, and that thing leads them to take their own life in the end. Maybe you know somebody or have a friend of a friend who's this has happened to. If you track back through that person's the, the lead-up to this horrible act that they commit— You'll find destructive narratives somewhere planted in their story that became so deep and broad they, they just couldn't find their way out of it. Well, Jesus came to give us life. He assures us over and over again that death is only a way station on the path into life. He is all about life. And so you could make a case that Jesus, at his core, is sort of our spiritual tech support. <laughs> he not only came to set captives free, that's his primary mission, the way he sets captives free is he helps to surface the bugs in our operating system, then get them out before they destroy us. That's his primary purpose. So if the stories we embrace about ourselves determine the me that we operate as, or we become the story we have decided to live inside, then Jesus is intending, because of his mission statement, I've come to set captives free, he's intending to find those bugs and surface them in the light and partner with us to get them out of the operating system. He's come to tell the truth about our story and to debug that operating system. So if he wants to find and get rid of the bugs, then what does that look like? Well, I mentioned my daughter, Lucy, and I actually invited her to be on the podcast with us today. I'm going to get her on the phone right now, and the next portion of the podcast, Lucy and I will have a running conversation about. All right, welcome uh, my daughter, Lucy, from the campus of Colorado State University. Lucy, say hello to everybody. Hi. So I invited Lucy on today because I want to talk through some encounters Jesus had with people who are trying to plant these destructive narratives in him, and then also talk through with her a time when Jesus encountered someone close to him who had already invited in a destructive narrative and it had become embedded in him, and what Jesus did to surface surface that and remove it. But I thought what would be interesting first is to talk a little bit about specifically what some of our sort of bugs in our own operating system are? What what are some of the destructive narratives that we've had to deal with in our own lives? These things, by the way, kind of lurk in the darkness. We're not always aware that we have a bug in our system. In fact, we most often aren't aware, and something has to happen to surface the reality of these things. And so I thought I'd list a few things that I know have been surfaced into the light in me over the years, and how Jesus has helped these to get to the surface and then together partner to to get these out of my story. So one of those bugs in my story is you're too much. I remember uh, I really only started dating when I was in college, and one of the first dates I went on in college was with this girl I had known only for a short time. So we, we didn't know a lot about each other, and we decided to go out to eat, which means a lot of talking time, right, over, <laughs> over dinner. And, and uh, at the end of that night, she literally said something to me like, you're just too much for me, and we never had another date. <laughs> and that thing went straight to my core when she said that, because it was already an embedded belief I had about myself. I had this deep suspicion 
that I was always too much for people. And then somebody actually speaks it out to me. So all that did was sort of support and energize this destructive narrative that I had held in my soul for so long. A few other bugs in my operating system over the years have been, you're not enough. This, by the way, you're not enough is a common bug in the operating system for almost every man. If you ask any man, have you ever heard a little voice inside that says, you're not enough? About 98.7% of them will say, absolutely, I've heard that. The reason for that is that that particular bug in the operating system of men is very effective. It is very good at diminishing a man's ability to make good impact in the world, and very good also at destroying their impact in the world. So you're not enough is another one of those bugs. Another one that goes deep into my core is that you're invisible. Because of the family life I grew up in, I developed a survival mechanism that said the reason for the behavior of the people around me is that I must not have something where my soul is supposed to be. I'm invisible. That one was probably the deepest bug in my operating system. It's taken a lifetime to not only surface it, but to allow Jesus to slowly pull that weed out of my, out of my garden, so to speak. And then the last one I thought of is, uh, last bug, is others have success, but you never will. That narrative that got planted in my story. So these are all the ones that have been surfaced into the light for me and are in, either have been pulled or in the process of being pulled out of my narrative. And Lucy, I'm wondering for you, when you think about the bug in your operating system, what, what's something that comes to your mind about you? What a question to start off. Um, <laughs> you are my daughter. I can ask you these questions. <laughs> yes, but normally, you know, I'm not also being broadcasted to other people. But, um, yeah, um, for me, I think one that has been reoccurring um, has been uh, you don't fit or there's something different and kind of wrong about you that that and you're never going to be able to like recover from that and I think it comes a lot from just kind of who I am doesn't really fit the normal path lots of times like I'm an English major right now but I'm also pre-nursing and I'm a Spanish minor and that is not the normal track people go down in college and things like that are just like the way I live and relate to people I often just feel like who I am is different and wrong and doesn't fit in society and it's never going to and that's you know and that's kind of a shaming point. So uh, like why can't you get your act together and um Yeah, but the the centrality of that is that you don't fit. You don't yeah. fit and you never will fit. What yeah. what do you think has been the practical impact of that in your life? What's an example of an outcome of that bug getting planted in your story? I think for me, I will have moments of kind of panic where I realize, "Oh gosh, I am not following the path that everyone else is falling down and I think that leads to kind of this like building tension and panic in me of oh gosh so if I didn't follow the normal track this far like what if I continue to fall but what if I never get married or or never you know have a job in the same sense of that most people do because my past from this from you know has been different and so I think it manifests in feeling um kind of a sense of dread and a sense of panic, like, I need to somehow change this, I need to 
you know, I or a sense of fear that I'm never going to be on the right path. So, so here's here's an interesting little case study here of what you put on the table here about the impact of these bugs in our operating system. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, that your path in life is to make a countercultural impact. Something that yeah. you're that you're meant to do is actually meant to go against the stream. And this destructive narrative, this bug in your system, is trying to suppress that momentum. So you, you can yeah. think strategically about this, that if you're meant to do something that is extraordinary and uphill and against the current and will be difficult on its own just because of all of those things, but those mm -hmm. but that momentum is crucial to the advance of the kingdom of God, well, what would an enemy want to do to keep you from following that path? Well, he might plant a bug in you that says you're never going to fit in, and that because you won't fit in, you won't have all of the things you've always hoped for and dreamed for. You better yeah. conform and, and stop, stop fitting in. <laughs> you better start yeah. to work harder to fit in. Leave behind that countercultural path so that the dreams and hopes that you have actually can be realized. That's right. an but insidious. More, um, and I think also when I have more of my panic moments, or not panic moments, just like moments of kind of like fear or and things, if I'm trying to then conform to what I believe is the path that like most people take, it immediately feels inauthentic and plastic and not, not um, natural for me. Um, so it's kind of... I think though Satan uses this to try to keep me on the path, there is a sense in me where I can tell this is not how I was meant to operate. And that's that's really the gift of the Spirit of Jesus in you, who creates mm -hmm. dissonance around incongruence. But it's right. up to you as to whether you're going to listen to that or not, right? You have right. a choice right. of which which one of these you will follow and actually act out of. And you probably right. sometimes, just like everyone else, just like me, you sometimes probably, for the sake of convenience or exhaustion, or you're just tired of fighting it, you go with the destructive narrative sometimes. You you let yourself yeah. go down that path a little bit, but the deeper you go on that path, the more unsettled you might feel inside, which is really the gift of the Spirit in you. So right. let's explore a story where Jesus had an encounter with someone who was trying to plant one of these bugs in him, and let's explore a little bit about what he did in response to this, just as sort of a case study with Jesus. And then we'll yeah. move on to another case study where he's encountering someone who's had a bug planted in them and see what he does to get it, get it out of there. So we're, the first one we're going to go after is a discussion Jesus had about the Sabbath. This is in Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read this, and, and Luce, what I'd like you to do as I'm uh, reading this, just think about what is the bug— that's embedded in here that somebody is trying to plant in Jesus' story. What's the bug? Why is it destructive? And what does Jesus do to confront or resist the bug? Those are the three questions we want to pursue in this story. So again, this is in Matthew 12. It's a discussion about the Sabbath. Here's how it goes. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it, and protested, Hey, look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the Scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple 
may work on the Sabbath. I tell you, there is one here who is even greater than the temple, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. Quote, I want to show you mercy, not offer sacrifices. So then Jesus says, for the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Well, then Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. Again, remember, this is on the Sabbath that this is happening. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? Well, they were hoping he would say yes so that they could bring charges against him. And he answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Well, then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored, just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. So one thing that's interesting about this encounter is this is the start of the conspiracy against Jesus. This encounter led to the plot to kill him. Uh, because they were so incensed by how he responded here. So, Luce, as you listen to this, what strikes you as the the bug, the destructive bug that they're trying to plant in Jesus when you look at this story? So I think uh, this is just what I thought of as I heard it. Kind of the irony of this is they're kind of trying to pin Jesus as a hypocrite by kind of saying, um, you say don't work on the Sabbath, but then look, you're healing somebody on the Sabbath, or you're letting your disciples pick grain and harvest grain on the Sabbath, trying to poke holes in his speech and say you're not um, who you say you are or or who you are um, is kind of um, not congruent. It's kind of ironic because, you know, Pharisees are now kind of synonymous with hypocrisy, but they seems like they were trying to almost pin hypocrisy on Jesus. Oh, that's so good. And I love what you said there about they're trying. They're really trying to undermine his identity. They're trying to yeah. call into question how he is describing himself. Because how could God, who is perfect, be a lawbreaker? How could God, yeah, well, who is I'm perfect, gonna... break his own law? Well, and the underlying thing here, um, the big, big, mega thing they're trying to point out is they're trying to say you're not the son of God, um, or trying to prove that like if you were the son of God, this is not how you'd act. And I think it's funny that he um, they put these two stories together where um, the Pharisees are um, chastising the disciples for harvesting on the Sabbath. And then Jesus kind of almost is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go heal somebody on the Sabbath. <laughs> kind of like, kind of, I'm just going to go a step farther to prove that this was not something I overlooked. I didn't overlook that the disciples were doing this, but it's something that I think is like, acceptable to do on the Sabbath, and kind of sticks it to them. Um, A very sassy thing to do, kind of. Yeah, it's interesting, because the law says you're not permitted to work on the Sabbath, and Jesus' response to that is, yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. So he is putting in perspective the purpose of the law in the first place, and he's also saying that the one who creates the law in the first place is Lord over the law that you Pharisees have missed the spirit of the law, and I am operating in the spirit of the law when I do this. Of course it's okay to heal someone on the Sabbath, is what he's trying to say. And you're so right, Lucy, that he's fully man and fully human, so the human sensibility of Jesus, of course, is uh, the Scripture says he's been tempted in everything we've been tempted in. 
So we can assume that in this encounter, where they're trying to plant the idea in him that anyone who breaks a law like this and does it brazenly can't possibly be God, so the temptation there is to wonder, well, uh, the fact that I allow my disciples to break the law, and the fact that I think healing a man on the Sabbath is well within a reasonable response to someone doing work on the Sabbath. Why wouldn't you do that kind of work on the Sabbath to heal someone? I think it goes back to the biggest problem that um, Jesus had with the Pharisees was Jesus came so that we weren't a work-based culture anymore, or we were. it was a grace-based. He stopped kind of this work harder to be better um, because Jesus is a grace-based. And the hard part with the Pharisees is having to try to change their mindset around we are not um, tied to the law anymore um, because of what Jesus has done for us. So we don't have to um, feel kind of a bondage to the law and to following the rules. Yeah, that's so good. And the, the thing to remember here, I think, is that this, this is not an isolated occurrence. Over and over again, the Pharisees and others are trying to plant these destructive bugs in Jesus' operating system. They're trying to plant this doubt about who he is, this doubt about his identity over and over again. How would you say, yeah. how would you say Jesus went about resisting this bug? How would you categorize how he fought back against it? Well, I think the more obvious thing is he stood his ground, and even, you know, kind of back to the sassy thing was like, nope, I'm going to take it a step farther. And so I think the first thing is he um, immediately acknowledged this isn't the truth, and then kind of to prove his point further, like went and again did what the Pharisees would categorize as work on the Sabbath. So I think that's the first thing is he didn't for a second let those lies be any have any weight to them. That's so good. I love I love how you describe him there too. I, I told uh, before you got on, I told the podcast listeners that I'm working on this uh, daily devotional that'll come out next year, and I told them that the the title of it is the Jesus Center Daily, and maybe I should call it though Sassy Jesus instead. I like Sassy Jesus. That that's that's yeah. kind of kind of one of his primary uh, the ways of expressing his operating system. <laughs> I love he in the there's one place where he's talking to the disciples and the disciples are still not getting what he's saying and he looks at them and he says, "Are you still so dull?" And I think that's the sassy <laughs> sassy <ever>. Jesus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we might have something here, Luce. So so the the point here is that Jesus was very vigorous in defending himself against these bugs in his operating system. He would not tolerate them. What's that? Yes, it was an immediate, immediate act. Yeah, so he's he's not he's not giving them a little time to sink in or anything. He's he's going after them right away. Well, I think the truth is also that he he does the same thing to help us and to help others that he encountered in Scripture get their bugs surfaced and debugged, so to speak. So he brings into light these weaponized narratives that have been implanted in our story because, again, we live out our story, our operating system. We live out that story, whatever it's telling us about ourselves. So let's look last here, Lucy, about the story of Peter and how Jesus encountered the bug embedded in Peter and what he did about it. So just to kind of give an overview before we dive into the very end of Jesus' story with Peter, just the overview of Peter and kind of get to reacquaint ourselves with what kind of person he was. Peter yeah. was the first apostle called by Jesus. He was on his fishing boat 
when this happened and when Peter realized who Jesus was, he basically said, please get off my boat because I'm a, I'm a horrible, horrible man. <laughs> and uh, Jesus said, nope, you're my first disciple. That's who you are, Simon. Peter was the first to name Jesus the Messiah publicly. He was the first to step over the side of the boat and walk on water. He was the first to be reprimanded by Jesus, who, you know, right after Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and and Jesus says, wow, Peter, you're blessed to say that publicly. The Spirit revealed that to you. And then right after that, when Jesus starts to tell Peter and the others what's going to happen to him, that he's going to have to sacrifice his life for them, Peter says, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he's the first one to be reprimanded by Jesus. He's the first to witness, really, the transfiguration of Jesus on that mountain, where he goes up with James and John. Jesus takes James and John and Peter up to the mountain, and he encounters sort of the almost a ghostly image of Moses and Elijah on this mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter is there, the, the one of the first to witness this, and kind of sputters at the end of it, how about if I build you these little shelters as memorials for this incredible thing we've just witnessed? And Jesus said, ah, I don't think so. So <laughs> Peter was there on that mountain. Peter's always invited into these sort of private things that Jesus does. He's also the first to ask how he should forgive. He's the one that asked, should I forgive like seven times instead of three? Seven times would be a lot, and Jesus answers, no, 70 times seven. So Peter is the one who asked that question. He's the first to ask what he and other disciples will get for leaving behind everything in their life. He, he basically say, he comes right out bluntly and says, Jesus, we've left everything for you. What are we going to get out of this? <laughs> so he asks Jesus that. He uh, tells Jesus that others may desert him in the end, but not him. And then Jesus responds by telling him he's going to betray him three times. Peter's the one who draws a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the temple guard. And then right after that scene, he betrays Jesus three times. And, and after his betrayal, he disappears from the scene. We don't see any evidence of Peter. He's gone from the narrative. He's probably, given his makeup and how much he identified with his bravery and courage, and I'll go down fighting with you, Jesus, he's probably contemplating his own death. In Scripture, it says he went away weeping bitterly after his third betrayal. And then what we see in this, that in those dark moments where he disappears from the narrative, that bug that's been planted in Peter, it, it threatens to kill him. Judas does take his own life. Peter, I believe, comes close. He's full of despair. He's done the one thing that he can't forgive in himself. This bug in his operating system has now been surfaced, and it could kill him. Afterward, the one last first thing that Peter did was, if you remember, that both he and John ran to the tomb after the women told the disciples that the tomb was empty. Peter and John run to the tomb, and John stands outside, but Peter goes right in to the tomb and finds it empty there. So again, another first for, for Peter. So there's a little kind of an overview of Peter, and then we come to John 21, the last chapter in the book of John, where Jesus appears to his seven disciples, and just to set the scene here, they're by the, the Sea of Galilee. Peter and the other disciples really don't know what to do. They're in this liminal space of after Jesus has—the uh, the tomb is empty. They don't know what's going on. And, you know, we, we have no conception of what it must have felt like to not know what was going on, because this, this was unprecedented. So Peter's like, I don't know what to do. Let's go out and fish. Let's go do the thing we're used to doing. So they go out into the Sea of Galilee, 
in a boat, and they fish all night, and they haven't caught any fish, and that's where we pick up the story. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. So he called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, well, throw out your net on the right sand side of the boat and you'll get some. And so they did. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Well, then the disciple Jesus loved, who is John writing these words, the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he'd stripped for work, jumped in the water and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about a hundred yards from shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. Well, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to the disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. Well, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And then Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Well, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. So there's, there's this last encounter Jesus has with Peter. The bug in his operating system has been surfaced. He came close, I think, to taking his own life. That's why he was not at the cross and nowhere in the narrative after his betrayal. And here we have uh, Jesus encountering him again on a mission to, to get rid of that bug, to somehow surface it and expose it and sort of surgically remove it. So, Lucy, as you, as you think about that story, what do you think Jesus is doing to surface and debug Peter? What, what do you notice about this encounter and his history with Peter? Well, I think um, I, think I kind of—this um, always this story always strikes me because, you know, I, I imagine myself, I'm in Peter's place, and, uh, you know, after the first time, um, or the second time, just getting frustrated, and the third time, we're being like, are you kidding me? Like— like, God, why do you keep asking me the same question? Like, you know, just kind of the, the frustration around it. Like, why do, you keep, why do you keep bringing up this point that's already, you know, is a sore point in me, something that I've, you know, I've, or I, you know I betrayed you three times. So, um, and I think there has, I think it's very crucial that Jesus does it three times because I think the underlying narrative is Peter is believing even if I say I love the Lord, I must not, or I I am untrustworthy. And you know, look at what I did. I said I would. I loved the Lord. I said I would do anything for Him, and then I denied Him three times. And so I think the lie that Peter is telling himself is, I am 
not who I say I am, and I don't. What I say about loving the Lord, it's not how I act. I'm a poser. I'm a poser. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's the perfect word. I'm a poser, and I don't know how to stop it. Like, I don't know how to not be a poser. Yes. Uh, Yeah, that's so good what you just said there, who I am as a poser. I didn't just act like a poser just then. Actually, my operating system is a poser. And, and it's not even—it's to the point where it's not even intentional or it's even something that you do consciously. It's a subconscious posing where your default is to pose. Yeah, I can't stop my posing because it's right. it's embedded. It, it's not a bug in my operating system. It's the whole deal. And, right. And even if I say with the greatest sincerity, I will always pray for you, Jesus, you know— who I am is a poser, and so I will go back against my word. That, I think, is the bug, and that's why I think he has to ask him three times, because I think the first time, it's just a gimme answer. It's just Peter's just going to say it no matter what. Like, yes, of course I love you, Lord. Like, And I think it takes three times to get to the heart of actually what Peter believes. To perform the proper tech support. It takes three entries into the operating system to locate the bug— and isolate it, and then remove it. But what's interesting about this, too, is that Jesus does this in partnership with Peter. So he doesn't just sort of reach in, remove what is toxic and poisonous in Peter. He has to surface this into Peter's consciousness. Peter has to become aware of—that's why he's agitated and hurt in the end, because what Jesus has done by poking at him three times is he has surfaced this poser belief— that he has right. in his narrative. And now that it's surfaced in Peter's consciousness, I've said before on the podcast, everything in the kingdom of God is based on invitation. Jesus never right. forces himself. It's always in, in response to our invitation. And so Peter's agitation is part of the invitation that Jesus is trying to get to. And Peter's response in the end, in the midst of his hurt and pain, I love his third response, because his third response is not—you you call this first response a gimme. I thought that was a great way of phrasing it. The third time he responds, he's hurt, and Peter says, yeah. Jesus, you know I love you. I think that's the first time Peter realizes or accepts it for himself. Yes. Um, I think you see him accept it. I don't think it's for Jesus. I think it's completely for—also— for yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, he's he's provoking Peter into this point. He's purposefully agitating him with the invitation to Peter that Peter responds to. In the end, in the, though he's hurt, he's doubtful that he's maybe a poser, he looks at Jesus and says, but Jesus, you know everything. You know the truth about my heart, and the truth about my heart is I love you. That is a planting of a flag in the ground. I think this is one of the moments where all of history pivots, because Peter, upon Peter, the Church begins. On that foundation of his leadership, Mm -hmm. the Church begins, and the Church has to begin with Peter planting his flag in the ground and saying, I don't care what that bug is telling me anymore. The truth is, you know it, and I know it. I love you. And that extracts Um, that bug. Yeah. So this scene. I've never actually thought of this connection before, but in the movie Good Will Hunting, you've seen Good Will Hunting, yeah. right? Yeah, uh-huh. That's okay. a great film. It is. But there's that moment where Robin Williams is talking to the... Sorry, I'm not good. Whatever his name is. The Matt character. Damon? Matt Damon, yeah. Thank you. Matt Damon. <laughs> 
John Williams is talking to Matt Damon, and he says, like, over and over again, this isn't your fault. And he, I believe those are the words. And he says it, and the first couple of times, Matt Damon's like, yeah, I know, I know. And he just keeps saying it, and it gets to the point where Matt Damon breaks down and just starts sobbing. Yes. And I think for, I think that is truthfully the best depiction we have of kind of what Jesus was doing with Peter. He, Peter, the first time he said it, was like, yeah, whatever. And he needed to have it repeated, the same thing repeated to him over and over again for it to finally break through the walls he's been putting up for so long. Oh, I love that. I, I remember that scene you're talking about, Lucy, and that is brilliant, actually. He, uh, that The character, the counselor that uh, Robin Williams plays in that film is brilliant in that moment because he does exactly what Jesus does. He surfaces right. the deeper truth, and he invites Matt Damon's character to finally embrace that truth, to get it out in the open, so it can yeah. be, it finally can be vanquished. That that is right, a great. This, in, this entire movie, Matt Damon has kind of um, had this very, very difficult life, and a lot of difficult things have happened to him, and he blames himself for all of them. Yeah. And the underlying narrative there that's not true is like this is all my fault, and this is you know I'm this way because of me, and I'm not good enough. Yeah, and, it's a, it's a really a film about the destructive nature of bugs in the operating system. Yeah, that's what the whole right. film is about, how they work to destroy you, and how a person who is sort of a metaphor for Jesus, in, in a way, enters into his story, forces him to embrace the truth about those bugs, and then helps him to extract them from his, from his story. It's so good. I love that. Yeah. Let's close off the podcast today with—we uh, don't usually do this, but I want to do this today. Let's close this off with a, a prayer experience. So if you're listening right now, whether you're driving or sitting at home or wherever you are listening, if you're driving, don't close your eyes. You can. Did you know that you could pray without closing your eyes? It's actually possible. <laughs> so let's close with a prayer experience. So if you're able to close your eyes, that's helpful to kind of cut out the distractions from around you. So all I want you to do is just be quiet for a moment, and we're going to do this on the podcast. I'll give you some time here to, to do this as we close. I want you to just be quiet wherever you are right now and ask Jesus a simple question. And Lucy, I'm going to ask you to do this too. I'm not going to ask you to share out of this experience. I'm just going to ask you to do it with me here. So just simply ask Jesus right now in the quiet, what's one bug in my system that has been planted in me? A belief about myself that was not put there by you, but by your enemy. So what's one bug in my system, Jesus? Would you show me what that is? So we're going to pause in silence here for a moment and let Jesus speak to you. So here we go. All right, for those that are in a place where you could write on a piece of paper or something, I'd like you to write out whatever it is that you just got from Jesus. If you're not in a place where you can write something down and you're alone, I'd like you to speak it out loud. Uh, I'd like you to say it out loud so that it gets out of the darkness into the light, whatever that thing is. And once you've spoken it out, when you get to a place where you can write it down, write it down. What is that bug? Just give it a word, a phrase, whatever, to describe it. And then I'd like you to kind of crumple it up and put it in your hand. Hold it in your hand tightly. I don't want you to show this to anyone. Don't share it with anyone. I want you to, metaphorically now, if you can't actually crumple that and put it in your hand, metaphorically do that. 
imagine it being a crumpled piece of paper in your hand that says those words, whatever Jesus just revealed to you. And now I'd like you to listen to the truth. So just quiet yourself for a second. Here is the truth. I want to speak this out to you as a, in the same way Jesus spoke out truth to those who tried to plant a bug in him, and the same way he spoke out and invited truth from Peter. Receive this in the same way. And here it is. Jesus loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you, and he's relentless. He will drag your bugs into the light and ask you to admit them. And then he'll ask you to give them to him. And then he'll remove them from your operating system. That's the truth. All right, so if you just did that, went through that process just now, I want to invite you to go on over to our PIGS page. It's the special invitation-only Facebook page for those who are regular listeners to the podcast or fans of the podcast. It's a community page for those who uh, want to go all in with Jesus. So I want to invite you to go on over that page. I'll, uh, I'm going to post invitation for a response to this little thing that we did at the end. And if you feel like you'd like to share your experience with this in whatever way you want to share it, that's a great place to get it out in the light. And I encourage you to do that because bugs lose their ability to control your life when you get them out in the light. So I'm going to post something on the pigs page, and if you'd like to respond about your experience with this, please do. If you aren't on the pigs page yet, um, it's easy to do. You can go to paying-ridiculous-attention-to-jesus.com, and down at the bottom of that page you'll see a little button that asks to be invited onto the page, and we'll get you on the page, and you can share your experience. So I encourage you to do that. And gang, thanks for listening. And Lucy, thank you for being on the podcast today. I love thank doing this with you. Me. Of course. I love doing it with you. Uh, thanks for jamming it into your busy college life schedule. Uh, like, what time do you think you're going to go to bed tonight? Well, I'm not going to get off campus till about nine tonight. So yeah. After that, <laughs> have you taken that really? Have you taken that really hard bio test yet? Um, physiology test, and yes, I took it yesterday. Hardest test I've ever taken in my life. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, next week you'll have the next hardest test you've ever taken uh, in your life. Oh, yeah. I very much hope not. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, thanks again for Lucy for being on the Thank podcast. You so much. Remember, gang, uh, you you can uh, find out more information, but in further detail about everything we talked today on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus dot com. Just find our podcast section, and you're looking for season four, episode twelve. Remember to check out the Jesus Centered Bible at mylifetree.com. Click on the links on our podcast page if you're looking for anything that we talked about today. They'll be there. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and we'll talk again next time.